Thank you, brother, very much for leading us in song and worship. We're very grateful. Mark 14, 12 through 21 is where we are this morning, and let me read that to you. On the first day of unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, where will you have us go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he sent two of his disciples and said to them, go into the city and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him. And wherever he enters, say to the master of the house, the teacher says, where's my guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished and ready there prepare for us. And the disciples set out and went into the city and found it just as he, as he had told them. And they prepared the Passover. And when it was evening, he came with the twelve. And as they were reclining at table and eating, Jesus said, Truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They began to be sorrowful and say to him, one after another, Is it I? He said to them, It is one of the twelve, one who is dipping bread into the dish with me. For the Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. This is the word of God. You can be seated. I've titled the message this morning, Perfect Knowledge and Perfect Obedience. Perfect Knowledge and Perfect Obedience, and we'll find out why I've titled that here in just a moment. But let's bow first. Father, I pray that you would please be pleased to use the foolishness of my preaching, Lord, to continue to build the kingdom. Lord, I pray that you would please help me to, of course, present this word rightly, accurately, lovingly, and boldly. And I pray that your Holy Spirit would do his job to take this truth into our hearts. And Lord, of course, we pray for consciences to be pricked. We pray for minds to be convinced. We pray for souls to be converted. And we pray also, Lord, for your saints to continue to be built up in the faith, once for all, delivered to the saints. Lord, we pray this in Jesus' perfect name. Amen. Got a question for you, an intriguing one, I hope. If someone offered you the ability to know exactly what day you would die and exactly how you would die, would you want to know? Now, it couldn't come with any possibility of changing it in any way. It would come as set, it would come as concrete, unchangeable knowledge of the day of your death and the cause of your death, would you want to know it? I personally would not want to know. I know myself well enough to know knowledge of that nature would only lead to anxiety for me personally. Not, now you need to understand, my anxiety wouldn't be because I'm afraid of death itself, it, it wouldn't be that. I know that I'll be with the Lord in heaven, not because of any righteous deeds that I've done, 
but because of the righteousness of Jesus Christ. The only thing I'm trusting in for my salvation, I've placed my faith fully in him for my salvation on the day of judgment. And so I know that my sins are forgiven and I know that I have a home in heaven because of his righteousness, not of a righteousness of my own. So then where would my anxiety come from? My anxiety would simply come from the fact that I would know that those circumstances of my passing would, be, would mean that I'm leaving loved ones behind who I care about dearly. And of course, I would want to know that they handled it well, that they're able to handle it well, and then after my passing, they're supported well also. Um, also, depending on why I die, <laughs> I'd, I'd be a little anxious about that too. If it was cancer, if it was a car accident, a shark attack, I don't know. Just the knowledge of I'm going to have to go through this before I take my last breath, I'd be anxious about that too. Um, in our text, we heard that Jesus has perfect knowledge of all future events. He also has perfect knowledge regarding his betrayal. Um, we know that it's recorded, it's pre-recorded in other parts of Scripture. Jesus' life. So much of Jesus' life was prophesied. His life wasn't just foreordained, it was, he was even pre-recorded in a lot of ways, right? But unlike me, however, Jesus is able to hold all this knowledge in its fullness and yet also walk in perfect peace and in perfect obedience to the Father, submitting to his will perfectly and gladly and joyfully. Before we end, we'll answer the question, of, of course, as to how he's able to do that, because I just don't want to throw that out there and leave it. We're going to talk about how Jesus is able to walk in perfect peace and in full obedience, even though he has perfect knowledge of the day of his death and the circumstances of his death. So we will get there. There's a clear separation in our text. You may have seen it between two parts. Um, Jesus' perfect knowledge can be seen in both those parts. The first part being about sending the two disciples, telling them everything that they're going to see, who they're going to talk to, where they're going to go in all of these situations to prepare the Passover. second part happens during the Passover meal itself, and Jesus is informing his followers that one of them is going to betray him, just as it is written about him. So we see Jesus' perfect knowledge in both of these scenes, if you want to call them that, scenes, don't we? So let's start by looking at verse 12 then. Let's go ahead and go there, verse 12. And it says, on the first day of unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, where will you have us go prepare for you to eat the Passover? The rest of this that section of scene one is, is Jesus' answer. So it, it all starts off with their question. Where would you have us go to prepare? Now, to prepare for the arrival of Passover, Jewish people would painstakingly prepare the house. One way that they would do it is they would sweep up all the corners. They would sweep up even uh, window seals and everything. Sometimes they would even scrub the house in the effort to make 100% sure that all leaven 
was removed from the house. Of course, they would take any leavened items of food out before doing this as well. This is all part of getting ready for this holiday slash ceremony. It was a really big deal to the Jews. It was actually the, the first of all their feasts back in Exodus. This is really the one that started it all. But doing all this is how they made doubly sure that there was no leaven in the house anywhere, and that was part of the prerequisite for celebrating this. Also, the Passover meal is more like a service than just a, let's sit down and eat a meal. It had a lot of different parts to it, and a lot of different pieces to it as well. There were cups of wine, there was unleavened bread, there were bitter herbs in a dish. There was also another mixture of, of dip called hariset, which was a sweet and bitter mixture that they would dip into as well, uh, etc. There was, there was lots of other parts. This is definitely something that required preparation, which is why they say, where would you have us go prepare for you to celebrate the Passover? And notice also, notice also their position. They are wanting to prepare this meal for their master, which is the natural reflex of those who are true followers of Jesus Christ. They long to and want to serve him. Let's not let that go unsaid. So Jesus' answer is what we find then in verses 13 through 15. And Jesus has already done something like this before where he gave them full details about what they're going to see and what they should do and what they should say. You might recall, we've already looked at this, something like this. It happened before the triumphal entry in Mark 11. Let me read over that because something similar to this has already happened. Remember this in Mark 11, 2 through 6? He said to them, go into the village in front of you and immediately as you enter it, you'll find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it, bring it. If anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it and we'll send it back immediately. And they went away and found a colt tied at the door outside in the street, and they untied it. Some of those standing there said to them, why are you untying the colt? And they said to them what Jesus had said, and they let them go. And that, and that happened. It happened just like Jesus said. So we've already seen Jesus do this in the past, giving them commands with details that, number one, they had to believe. And number two, they had to carry out by faith. So they had to, number one, believe what Jesus said was true, that they would see all this and say all this, and it would work out just right. But then they secondly had to walk out. They had to carry out those commands. They had to believe it, and they had to walk in it by faith. And isn't, isn't it that way with us concerning any of Jesus' words? Isn't it that way? It is that way. We have to believe that what he says is trustworthy. And then number two, we have to walk in obedience to those words. That's true for all of us. And that's how we show we really believe them, by carrying them out. Believing them enough that I'll actually obey them. So let's look at another example of Jesus' perfect knowledge. We already saw the one from Mark 11. Let's look more detailed at this. Verse 13 through 15, it's really, it's really great. He sends two of his disciples out. We learn from Luke 22 who these two are. It's Peter and John, by the way. 
Luke gives us a, a, a bit more detail here about who it is. It's Peter and John. Jesus says, go into the city. You're going to see a man carrying a, a jar of water. He's going to meet you. Follow him. He's going to enter uh, a house. Actually, he just says, wherever he enters, say to the master of the house, the teacher says this, where's my guest room? Then I may take the Passover with my disciples. And he's going to show you a large upper room, furnished and ready. And that's where you're going to prepare for us. So he tells them where to go. He tells them who they're going to see. He even tells them what he's going to be holding, what he's going to be carrying in his hand. Then he tells them again where to go, follow him. He's going to tell them what to say. And he's going to tell them what they'll see. And then lastly, again, he's going to tell them what to do. There is where you're going to prepare for us. Now, now, someone might say, what if this isn't miraculous? What if this is just normal? What if Jesus just went ahead and spoke to a guy and said, hey, um, I've heard you have a room. Awesome. Well, we're going to rent it, if you don't mind. If you don't mind, go ahead and have it ready for me. Tell you what, tomorrow I'm going to send two men, and they're going to get this all set up. Deal? Deal. See you later. The reason why I think it's more than that, the reason why I think this is supernatural knowledge, is because of some hints, some details that we get. Because look at this. He sends them, and he says, go into the city, and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Unless... Unless Jesus went ahead and found a guy and said, listen, I want you to just carry a water jar around all day long until two dudes come up to you. I really doubt it. I really doubt he said that. How else would this man have been carrying a water jar right at that time and met them right at that time? Jesus knew miraculously what they would see when they would see it. Otherwise, he would have to go through this weird, intricate plan of just carry the water jar around because I'm going to tell them they're going to meet a man carrying a water jar. I don't know what exactly what time it's going to be. Watches haven't been invented yet. So let's, I'm just going to have you carry water. Now, carry this water jar around now. It is miraculous. This man happened to be going from where he gets water taking it to his master's house at right the time Jesus knows that they're going to be there. And that's the man you're going to speak to, and that's the man you're going to follow. This is miraculous. Otherwise, it is a very odd thing that Jesus had someone do. And he follows him, and they follow him into this house and say this phrase, and it unlocks everything that they want. How did this man already have this room? And we don't know. We're not told. But this is miraculous nonetheless. And it goes on to show us here in uh, verse 16 that they obeyed. Um, Mark 11 did this too, the same as Mark 14 here. Mark is intentional in verse 16 about recording the obedience of the apostles. Um, it says in verse 16, And the disciples set out 
and went to the city and found it just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover. So verses 13 through 15 is what Jesus predicted slash commanded, and verse 16 is what the disciples did. And Mark did this in Mark 11 as well. He was intentional about showing and recording that the disciples obeyed and found it just like Jesus said. He made sure he wrote that down. When you're reading in the law as well, when you're reading Exodus, Deuteronomy, Moses wrote those, by the way. You'll see Moses does something like this too. He's very intentional on saying, God told Abraham this, and Abraham obeyed. God told Moses this, and Moses obeyed. God told Joshua, whoever it was, this, and Moses obeyed. He's very intentional about writing down every time they obeyed. Why? Because he's also got his audience in mind. He's got his audience in mind, us, though he didn't know it would be us. He's recording that they had to obey in order to see Jesus' words come to pass. Had they disobeyed what he said, would they have seen his marvelous predictions come to pass? Well, the answer is no, right? Had they disobeyed, they would not have seen Jesus' miraculous prediction come to pass. Let me, let me say this. If you're not walking in obedience to God, and you're also wondering why you're not seeing the works of God more prevalent in your life, then congratulations, we just figured out why that is. You cannot walk in disobedience to Jesus' clear commands and also expect to see his words come to pass in your life. Disobedience to God will not get you the blessing of God. Will it? Disobedience to God will not get you the blessing of God. Had they disobeyed what Jesus told them, had they not gone into the city, had they not spoken to the man carrying the water jar, had they not followed him, they would not have seen Jesus' words come to pass. And if you're sitting here wondering, why am I not seeing God's hand in my life more? Why am I not seeing God's blessing on my life more? Why am I not seeing God's blessing on my marriage more? Why am I not seeing God's blessing on whatever more? If you are blatantly walking in disobedience to his clear commands, you just discovered why that is. And this is coming from someone who's not beating you with this truth. This is coming from someone who has also learned this truth. It's not coming to you from a man who is walking in perfection, but this is coming from a man whose direction is pointed towards Jesus Christ and has learned these lessons too, okay? This is me caring for you and trying also to show you the truth of the word of God, which must be obeyed in order to see God's blessing. 
So it says in verse 16, they prepared the Passover. They prepared the Passover. They did it. Now, regarding the Passover itself, we'll talk more about this next week, okay? But let's also remember what the Passover meal was ultimately pointing to. It points to Christ as our Passover lamb. The Passover meal itself and the Passover, the original one as well, because remember, there was one, only one, Passover event, and that happened in Exodus before the people were freed, right? All Passovers after that are memorial services of the first Passover. They all point to Christ, however. He is the fulfillment of them. The Apostle Paul, in referencing both the Feast of Unleavened Bread and the Passover itself, said this, Cleanse out the old leaven, that you may be a new lump, as you really are, unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Paul said that. Paul makes clear that Jesus fulfills the Passover sacrifice. Jesus is what the Passover sacrifice was pointing to. He is the Passover lamb, once for all slain. Why should you even care about that, though? Why should you even care? Why am I making this point? Why am I spending time in my sermon? Because if Jesus is our Passover lamb, then that means the wrath of God can pass over us. Because that's what happened at the original Passover. A lamb was slain, blood was applied to the door, and death passed over that house. But you had to put your faith in what Jesus said, <laughs> in what God said on that day, that evening, right? God the Father commanded them, do this. You had to put your faith in what was said and then actually do it. And that's where the passing over came from. It's the same with Jesus. You have to put your faith in what he says and then do the faith. You have to put real faith in Jesus as that sacrifice, believing that because my faith is in him and what he did, God's wrath will pass over me. And we show, we show our faith is in him by walking in obedience to his word. That's how we show it. And it's not an obedience that someone has to twist your arm to do. You don't have to make born-again people love Jesus. They just love him because they're truly born again. Just like no one has to make me love Amy. I married her. I made vows to her. And we, with God's help, make our marriage good according to the word of God. And it makes me love her even more. And so no one has to say to me, hey, you should love your wife. I'm like, I, I do love her. Like, way more than you even realize. <laughs> and it's not going to change. You don't have to command me to do it. I like doing it. And that's what happens in the heart of a born-again person. He or she likes to obey Jesus because it's joyous. You get joy out of it because you're now in a relationship with him that you knew nothing of before. And it creates obedience, just like we see these disciples walking in obedience. They prepared the Passover. So let's now go to scene two. 
Let's now go to scene two, because Jesus is now in the middle of the Passover. Once we get to verses 17 through 21, Jesus is now in the midst of the Passover, isn't he? His followers um, are with him, and he decides to bring them further in to some knowledge that he knows that they don't yet know. He decides to divulge that information to them. He chooses to share with them that one of them is going to betray him. If suffering under the wrath of God wasn't enough, one of his close companions was going to help him get there through wicked and deceitful and deceptive means. Let's look at verses 17 through 21. And when it was evening, he came with the twelve. And as they were reclining at table and eating, Jesus said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who's eating with me. They began to be sorrowful and say to him, one after another, Is it I? He said to them, It is one of the twelve. One who is dipping bread into the dish with me. For the Son of Man goes as it is written of him. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man will be, be betrayed. It would be better for him if he had not been born. Whew. That's weighty, to say the least. If Jesus, if Jesus, who not only has all knowledge, he has all even contingencies, he knows even all contingencies, Meaning, he knows what could have been if this would have happened and what could have been if this would have happened. He not only knows the chess game, he knows all possible chess games. Because he even said once, if this would have been preached in Sodom and Gomorrah, they would have remained to this day. So he even knows all the ifs, what would have happened if this would have happened. And what he knows about this man, about this man's future, is he knows it would have been better for him if he would have never even existed. That's how heinous this crime is. Between verses 18 and 19, there's something that Luke tells us that we don't get from Mark. Look at verse 18, it says, And when they had reclined at table and were eating, Jesus says, and then he goes to say what he says. Luke adds something there. Luke adds that Jesus also said this, Luke twenty-two fifteen. 15, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. Luke adds that in. I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. Even right before, and then he goes in to share about his betrayal. You see Jesus able to be happy about something happening while also sharing very sad news about what's going to happen. You see Jesus being able to carry out both of these emotions at once. Emotions that I told you I, I couldn't handle knowledge like that. I know I couldn't. It would wreck me. I know myself well enough to know I couldn't handle knowledge of my future death, and all the details, Jesus is able to hold both 
imperfection, he's able to say, I have longed to be with you and eat this meal with you. And now let me tell you about one of you sitting here who's about to do something so horrible to me. The God-man, he is so amazing. And he says, for the Son of Man goes, as it's written of him. Did you catch that? As it's written of him. Remember I said Jesus' life uh, was also pre-recorded a lot of it. And of course we would never call him a robot, would we? It's been lobbied at us sometimes that the doctrine of election, the doctrine of predestination, must mean then that we're robots. And what I'm here to tell you is, here we have a man whose life was not only foreordained, but even pre-recorded. And no one would look at Jesus and say, what a robot, just carrying out God's... No, he was more free than any of us, which makes his obedience so much more precious. Where was it recorded of him? Psalm 41.9. Look at Psalm 41.9. Even my close friend, in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. This is, this is an example of that being pre-recorded. This event, it was prophesied beforehand that it would happen. Back in the Psalms. And I said at the beginning, I said that Jesus is able to hold all this knowledge in its fullness uh, in perfection and still have perfect peace and still perfectly obey the Father. And I said that I would answer the question of how he's able to do that. Look at John 13, 1 through 3. John 13, 1 through 3. How does he do this? How is he able to have perfect knowledge that you and I couldn't handle and yet have perfect peace? And still walk perfectly in obedience to the Father's will. John 13, 1 through 3. Now, before the Passover, I'm sorry, before the feast of the Passover, watch this. Because we're focusing on Jesus' knowledge, remember? When Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of the world, where? To the Father. That's key. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. That's precious. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, here's more knowledge, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God. This is something he knew. Like we saw a second ago, he knew his hour had come to depart out of the world and go to the Father. And then here, again, we see at the end of verse 3 that he was going back to God. He knew that. The text clearly says he knows this and he knows this. Uses that word know before each of those truths. And then he rose from supper after that and began to wash uh, their feet. So Jesus' knowledge that he was going to the Father, that he was going back to the Father, was at the forefront of his mind. He's got this truth. I'm going back to the Father. I'm going to see the Father again. I'm going to be at the Father's right hand once again in heaven. That's what he's keeping in front of his view. Okay? The Father before him, 
always before him, in the forefront of his mind, directly in his sights. This gave him the ability to possess perfect knowledge, even of his betrayal, even of his beatings and his death, and yet keep going. He put the Father in front of him. Listen to Hebrews 12, 1 and 2. There's more. Hebrews 12, 1 and 2. He starts by giving a word to the people that are reading and um, encouraging them to walk in obedience and walk in faith. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, he just got done with the Hall of Fame of Faith, Hebrews 11. Let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that's set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who, for the joy set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. We get a little bit of a key here. We get a little bit of how Jesus was able to endure the cross and despise the shame. How does it say he did it? By the joy set before him. John 13 tells us he knew he's going back to the Father. He knew that he was going to return to the Father. And then Hebrews 12 tells us here that he sustained himself through suffering by setting joy before him. Joy that came from the knowledge of reunion with the Father. Do you see that? This is why he was able to obey the Father because he knew who the Father was and he knew that being with the Father would be so wonderfully full of indescribable greatness and joy. Knowledge of who the Father is helps you obey him and helps you have perfect peace no matter what you are going to go through. The knowledge of his suffering was dwarfed by the knowledge of his God. Your knowledge of suffering can be dwarfed by your knowledge of God. Did you hear what I said? Your knowledge of suffering can be dwarfed by your knowledge of God. I was once talking with a lady whose husband committed adultery and caused great pain for her and her family and those who loved her. It was just a very sad situation because she was willing to reconcile with him and he still just said no and just just flushed her. It was just so very sad. It was a very sad situation. You know what she said to me one day? She said to me, God is bigger than my pain. God is bigger than my pain. If you kind of want to sum it up, what I just told you, that's a good coin phrase, and I'll never forget it. God's bigger than my pain. And that's all that got her through. 
But you'll only be able to experience what Jesus was experiencing here through through obedience. You cannot expect any of this while walking in blatant disobedience, can you? You cannot expect any of this knowledge of God and joy in his presence to sustain you through suffering if you're walking in disobedience to him at the same time, blatantly. You can't expect that. So I posed the question at the beginning about being able to possess some secret knowledge about your own life, namely concerning the day of your death. And as humans, we really like to be certain. We do. We really like to know things for certain. Actually, the source of a lot of your stress and anxiety in your life has been from you being uncertain. Have you ever said the phrase, how can I be sure? Or I'm just not sure. Have you ever thought or said that phrase? Based on maybe a job or based on maybe a sickness of someone that you know and love, based on maybe who you might spend the rest of your life with, based on whatever. Have you ever thought, can I be sure? I just don't know. And that's a source of stress for you, isn't it? Why? Because you're not certain. You don't know. You don't know the future, and you therefore say, I don't know what's going to happen. It could go this way, or it could go this way, and I don't know, and it's causing me great anxiety. Because if it goes this way, that might be bad. Or it could go this way, and that would be worse. Or it could go this way, and it would be just right. But I don't know. And so I don't know what to choose. We've all been there in some way, right? So we like to be certain. That's why certainty, real knowledge of the future, seems so attractive to us. Because we want to know. But for the Christian, obedience to God is far more valuable than knowledge of the future. Do you believe me? For the Christian, obedience to God is far more valuable than knowledge of the future. Listen to this quote by Eric Little that I found. Really good. If you don't know who Eric Little is, he was an Olympic runner back in the 1920s. A very godly man who actually left his career of being an athlete to be a missionary to China, and ended up dying there, unfortunately, um, at the age of 43, so just a year older than I am. Very, very godly man. Very godly. Listen to what he said. Obedience to God's will is the secret of spiritual knowledge and insight. It is not willingness to know, but willingness to do God's will that brings certainty (laughs) it's not willingness to know, but willingness to do God's will that brings certainty. That's powerful. Willingness to do God's will, willingness to walk out in obedience to God's will, that will give you more certainty than knowing God's will in the future. Knowing what the future is, obedience to God will bring you greater, more concrete certainty of who God is and his plan for your life than knowing the future. Jesus was able to possess perfect knowledge and still possess perfect peace while also walking in perfect obedience. 
you and I are not given perfect knowledge. We definitely don't all possess perfect peace, do we? Nor do we walk in perfect obedience. I'm almost done, guys. Listen to this. If you're in Christ, you've been given far more than enough. You've been given far more than enough certain, real, concrete knowledge about where you will be after your death that you don't need the knowledge of when and how you're going to die. What kept Jesus obedient and unwavering was his focus on the who, not the how, not the when, the why. What got him through all this with perfect peace was his knowledge of the who. That's who he set, that's what he set his focus on, a person, the Father, and joy with the Father. Because how could thinking of his Father not bring him perfect joy? That's why the psalmist says about God, in your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore because of who God is. Jesus focused on the Father and the joy of being reunited with him. I'm going to end with this. Listen to this. Focus on the Father and the joy of being forgiven and adopted because of the finished work of Jesus Christ. And you've got all you need to navigate the uncertainty of everything else. Focus on the Father and the joy of being forgiven and adopted by him through the finished work of Jesus Christ. And you've got all that you need to navigate the uncertainty of everything else. Amen? Let's pray. Father, these are wonderful truths and very simple truths. And we're grateful for them. They are sustaining truths. And I pray that you would please use them in our lives to help us to be more like Jesus, to help us to love him more. And of course, I pray that you would use these truths also to draw those who might not know you to yourself. And thank you that we can come because of the finished work of Jesus Christ, because of his death, burial, and resurrection for the forgiveness of sins. Lord, I pray that you would be drawing sinners and building up the saints with these wonderful truths. And it's in your son's name we pray. Amen. Thank you.